Good morning. It's good to see each of you here this morning. If you would, join me in praying uh, to our good and faithful God one more time as we now look to his word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you in great need, like we just sang about. If we were thinking rightly, we would know every second that we're alive that we need you desperately. We certainly need you now as we look to your word. and We take comfort in the fact that you are faithful, that you're good, and that you always keep your promises to show up in moments like now. Father, we pray you'd minister to us by your spirit. Fill me with your spirit as the preacher of your word so that I might be helpful to these dear people who've gathered here today. Fill all of us with your spirit, we pray, that we might have eyes to see the truth of your word and that we might love it in our hearts. We pray that you would minister to us. We're desperate for it. And we pray for that to happen in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I don't know why you showed up to church this morning. I don't know if you think about that often in the rhythm of your week. If this is just something that you maybe are habitually used to doing, that's not a bad thing that that would be an ingrained pattern in your life. Maybe for some, I know this is true in the church scene broadly in the States, it's just a, a kind of box that we tick off, a good thing that we do, and uh, we've accomplished that for the week, and so now we can go about Sunday afternoon or Sunday night or Monday morning, get the work week off to a decent start. Perhaps some of you are thinking as you come to a service like this today, you're thinking something really good about coming and worshiping God and ascribing to him the praise and the honor and the glory that he's due. If you're thinking that, that's good. That's a great thing. God is honored very much in an assembly like this when his word is open and read and preached and songs are sung that have biblical truth in them and prayers are prayed and the Lord's Supper is taken. He's glorified in that. And there's something else, too, I hope is on your mind as you come here today. I hope it's on your mind that I do, in fact, really know and believe that I need God. And my greatest need when I woke up this morning and when I wake up tomorrow morning and every morning after that, my greatest need is Jesus Christ, is his life in my place, his death atoning for my sin, his triumphant resurrection that guarantees me life forever bodily with God. I hope that's on your mind. And if it's on your mind, we have a wonderful text this morning. All of God's word ultimately is about Christ. Some texts are just more obvious in terms of how they put things. All of the Bible is inspired and some passages are unique and they're special to us for good reason. So if you've come here today acutely aware of your need for Christ, I pray you're encouraged. I am hopeful for my own heart as we look to God's word together now. So just a quick disclaimer, we're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 1 verse 8 through chapter 2 and verse 2. It's only five verses, and yet I feel like I need to say this. It probably goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. There is so much awesome stuff in these five verses, I will not possibly be able to touch on all of them. There will be a lot of wonderful things that I don't have time to say or unpack fully. I hope by God's grace to be able to explain it well, 
I hope by his grace to preach the main point of these five verses in the context in which they're written. And ultimately my aim by God's grace and by his spirit is to exalt Jesus Christ and hold him out for us this morning. But if there are things that you're curious about or there are things that you're hoping would be touched on and I don't touch on them or do it adequately enough, number one, forgive me. And then number two, talk to me after the service. I'll be at the door back there and I'll stand there and talk as long as you want to or you can always contact me this week. So before we make our way to our our passage for today, I want to very briefly, emphasis on very and briefly, um, just consider one or two high-level things for us that will help us, especially considering there are some new faces in the room. Remember the situation of this letter. Remember the context of this letter. Namely, John, the apostle, is writing into a church that is being bombarded by two things. This church is under siege from first, false teaching, and second, under siege from apostates, apostasy, people leaving them, denying Christ, punting the faith, and exiting the church. That's what's going on. Remember that. In the first sermon of this series, which would have happened two weeks ago, I talked about how the work of Christ in our place shows up very early in the letter. It does. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. We'll see how John, very early in this wonderful letter that he's written, is going to hold out for the people what Jesus has accomplished for them. And so that's what we get to look at, and I'm pretty geeked up. I trust you are too. But then the third thing that I want to say is something that I brought up already in the first two sermons, but just by way of reminder. I think you'll see in this text quite obviously that John is not in angry prophet mode when he writes this letter. He is in a protected big brother kind of mode. He is very tender, very pastoral in his tone in how he communicates with his readers. I think we'll see all of that today. So now that we've considered those things just briefly by way of introduction, and you probably already have your Bibles open, we will look to God's Word together, and I will read 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, through chapter 2 and verse 2. Listen now to God's Word. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word today and every day. So I have a very simple plan. I find that wonderful passages don't need a lot of like tricky, cute outlines from me. So two parts. Part one. Here we go. We are sinners And there is forgiveness and cleansing in Christ. Let me say that again. Part one. We are sinners and there is forgiveness and cleansing in Christ. Very simple. Let's look together to the text. Put your eyes on verse eight of chapter one. John comes out of the gate here. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not 
in us. Again, remember the context of the letter. Remember particularly that there would have been people, because of false teaching, basically denying that they had any sin. They would have been denying certainly the sinfulness of sin. Because remember this kind of dualistic thinking that was existing in this church context, right? There's two planes in the universe, a spiritual plane and a physical plane. What happened in the spiritual plane was the only thing that mattered. What happened physically in the body was lower. It was carnal. It was less than. This is that proto-Gnostic thought that we've been considering for a couple of weeks. And so individuals who would have bought into this system of thinking would have said, well, the sins that I commit in my body don't matter. Because it's just my lower carnal nature that's doing this stuff. At the spiritual level, I'm good. It was a denial of the reality of sin and the sinfulness of sin. So that's going on in this church context. And John is certainly without doubt addressing that. He says very plainly, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. In other words, if we say that we don't have any sin, that we are not sinning even, we're not of God, right? We're not of the truth. We're living, as we thought about last week, we're living in darkness, not in light. We're deluded, basically, self-deceived, if we say we have no sin. So this should come as no shock to most in the room, I trust. John is asserting a basic biblical truth. The whole witness of the scripture makes this quite plain. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins, Ecclesiastes 7.20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins, Solomon says. 1 Kings 8.46, for there is no one who does not sin. Very famously, the Apostle Paul in Romans 3, as he quotes Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, writes these words, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Boom. Not flattering words about us. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Maybe thoughts are wrestling or rumbling around, moving around in your mind, and you're like, okay, well, that may be true certainly of of people who are unbelieving, people who have not been born again. But what about in the church? Maybe it could be different. Maybe in the church we could achieve a level of, of seeing no sin. To that, I, I would respond with one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, the words again of the Apostle Paul from Romans chapter 7. He has already been writing about the crediting of Christ's righteousness to us by faith. He has been talking about our union to Christ, with Christ, by faith. He's clearly talking about a context where the person being considered, even himself, he's a Christian. I've been counted righteous in Christ. I've been united to him by faith. Sin does not reign over me anymore. He said all of those things. That's true. It doesn't dominate me anymore. But then he writes these words. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but the, I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Sin that dwells within me is still the reality of the Christian. At the same time, justified and sinner. 
It's critical that we hold those things together. For I know, says Paul, that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. This is the normal experience of the believer. This is critical that we would see this. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members, wretched man that I am. The Apostle Paul. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now this denial of sin, it can take a number of forms, right? I'm just going to touch on maybe three different ways that this commonly manifests itself in our contexts. The first way, kind of letter A, how does, how does the denial of sin show up? It might look something like this. The acknowledgement of sin is there. Sin is real. Okay, I'm not saying that sin is real. Sin is real. And it matters, but like legitimately, I haven't done it. Like legitimately, I'm not sinning. I'm doing well. So this happens, certainly could happen in a kind of with a philosophical leap, like what was going on in the context of 1 John. You're, you know, a Platonist and you're thinking about these dualistic realities. I don't think that's true of most people in the American church when they think, I'm doing pretty well. A lot of people in the American church have a very relativized understanding of God's standard, a very relativized understanding of God's law. His law is perfect and it's absolute. If we break it in any way, we are accountable to all of it. James 2, 10 and 11, right? But we don't think in those terms often. We think we're pretty good. It's like, hey, I haven't done X. I haven't done Y. I haven't done C. I haven't done A or B or whatever. I'm doing Okay. I'm a pretty good person. That kind of thinking is rampant in the American church. It produces a confidence in us that in and of ourselves, we are at least in some measure righteous. We are in some measure good. Another way that sin is often denied, though, in our context is by what I might call a redefinition of sin. We're going to take the scripture, we're going to twist it, we're going to manipulate it and redefine sin. What this results in is a very, I would call it like an uber-subjective, self-defined understanding of sin. You see this a lot, for example, in the liberal churches in America, right? There's no real regard for the words of the Bible. It's just like, nah, the Bible's a living document. We kind of interpret it as we will in our day, and that's not a big deal. Like, God's cool with whatever, fill in the blank. He used to not be, but that was just a culturally situated thing, and now he's cool with this. We're just going to redefine sin. So that's how it shows up secondly. Thirdly, another way that it finally will show up in our context is what I might just call a, an utter dismissal of sin, like a dismissal of the category altogether. Sin isn't real or sin is irrelevant, right? So we shouldn't talk in these terms. There's a dismissal of any kind of command, a dismissal of any kind of imperative from Scripture. This happens in what might be defined as like real antinomian churches. It matters not at all what we do. 
That kind of teaching exists, right? It results in this kind of live however you want sort of posture, and it's cool. As I said last week, if we're walking in the light, we are quick, quick to, one, acknowledge our sin for what it is. Like, we're not dumbing it down. We're not rounding the sharp edges off of it. We're calling it what it is. We're quick to do that. Secondly, though, if we're walking in the light, kind of related to this, we are honest about ourselves and quite self-aware. We're not aiming to hide things. For walking in the light, I mean, that definition is clear, right? To walk in the light is to walk in the open. To walk in the open in the light before God and in the church. So we're not making a practice of hiding the struggles in our lives. We're walking openly before the Lord and with each other. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But that's not the end of the story, praise God. Let's look to verse 9. Remember, we are sinners and there is forgiveness and cleansing in Christ. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, just a quick, I don't like to do this a lot, but on occasion, it's good to bring up things from the original language. The word that's translated to, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. In the original language, is a conjunction that's used to communicate purpose or cause and effect, right? One of the two. So in a way that we would want to render this, I think it might even be more helpful to us to think of it in these terms. God is faithful and just, which results in our forgiveness, which results in our cleansing from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, John says, in other words, if we walk in the light, God is faithful and just to forgive us. If we're identifying, acknowledging, humbly owning, and mourning and confessing sin, he is faithful and he's just. First thing that we should observe, though, about this forgiveness and this cleansing is that just straight up for you and for me, we come in here today, I trust many of us with guilty consciences because we know what's going on here and here, right? We've sinned in maybe even great ways in our hearts this morning. We're in need of forgiveness and we're in need of peace with God. There is real forgiveness and there is real cleansing for us in Christ and we must own that, believe that. That's the fight for faith, right? God has told me I'm cleansed, I'm righteous, I'm forgiven, but internally I feel like something different. John Calvin says this, it is a great moment, it is of great import, right? To be fully persuaded that when we have sinned, there is a reconciliation with God ready and prepared for us. We shall otherwise carry always a hell within us. Few indeed consider how miserable and wretched is a doubting conscience. That's true. But the truth is that hell reigns where there is no peace with God. We're in desperate need to know I'm a sinner and I'm forgiven. I'm a sinner and I'm cleansed of all unrighteousness. 
right? Grace and peace. I need grace because I'm a sinner. I need peace because I have a troubled conscience. Peace with God. To be in Christ and to have peace with God is the greatest blessing in the world. I want to drill down a little bit, though, on this faithfulness and justice of God, right? God is faithful and just, or God is faithful and righteous to forgive us, which results in him forgiving us our sins and cleansing us from all unrighteousness. So you could think of it in this way. Like, what's the ground? What's the bottom of our forgiveness? What's the bottom of our cleansing? It's God's justice, right? And it's his faithfulness. Let's take them one at a time. We'll consider first how God is faithful to us. This is sort of the bedrock that I stand on. I know I'm forgiven and I know that I'm cleansed because God is faithful. What does that mean? There's a lot that could be said, obviously, about God's faithfulness because he is an utterly faithful God. He has made a lot of promises. In Scripture, they're often called covenants. He has made covenant promises to his people, with his people that he has entered into with them. We know the refrain of Scripture so often is that he keeps steadfast love, right? He is a God of steadfast love. His steadfast love endures forever. That steadfast love is a covenant love. It's covenant faithfulness to his people. This is something that characterizes the Lord, Yahweh, the God of the Bible. And he has made covenants with his people to forgive them of their sin. He has promised that. He has covenanted to cleanse his people from their sin and remove it from them completely as far as the east is from the west, right? Remove my people's iniquity and transgression from them. He has promised to blot out the transgressions of his people for his own sake and to remember their sins no more. It is because the Lord loves us with a relentless and steadfastly faithful love that we can know that we have been forgiven and that we have been cleansed and that he removes our sin from us and cleanses us from all unrighteousness when we confess our sins to him. He is a faithful God. Praise be to his name. But secondly, he's not only faithful, he is just. So it's his faithfulness, but then it's his justness that is also a ground of our forgiveness and a ground of our cleansing. Now, the first part, his faithfulness, that washes over us in a way that's relatively easy to understand. Okay, God is faithful. He's loving. He's going to keep his promises. I get that. That's really good. That's comforting for me. I need to hear that. But then the second part, he's just. Like, it's kind of a mind blown because it's like, I know who I am. I know what I've done. Like, so explain to me, brother, how in the world God's justness could be good news for me when I'm a sinner, right? That needs to be in your mind. Like, okay, love, I get it, but just, that's, that's a problem because if he's just, I'm damned. If he is just, I stand ruined in his presence. The justness of God is an integral part of the ground of our forgiveness and cleansing. How? Because it seems like it would be grounds for our punishment and grounds for our condemnation, right? The short answer, and you know where I'm going, and that's good that you know where I'm going, and we're going to think about it together anyway. 
Because this is why we showed up today. The answer to that dilemma, how is the justness of God a ground of my forgiveness and cleansing, is found only in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Only. This is our life, right? Like this is our life. And so that's why we consider these things together Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. One of the greatest paragraphs in the whole Bible. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Okay, so that's the gospel. The righteousness of God apart from the law, credited to us by faith through Jesus Christ, all who believe, that's what happens. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, that is declared righteous, by his grace as a gift, unmerited faith. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So here we go. Here's how the justice piece fits in. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Now that's a big theological word. And it's an important word. Propitiation in a simple way means satisfaction. Jesus was put forward as a satisfaction for sin. God's wrath God's righteousness, God's anger against sin, because he's a good God, was poured out in full on Christ. Justice has been served. The penalty has really been paid. Like really. And we're going to think about that as we continue. So God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. When we trust Christ, that satisfying work he did is counted to me. It's counted to you. This was to show God's righteousness. Ah, there's that word righteousness, justice. Because of his divine divine forbearance, excuse me, he had passed over former sins. God had not wiped people off the planet and they'd been sinning for thousands of years. How? Because he knew Christ was coming. We're going to think about that in just a moment. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He's just because his justice has been met. He's the justifier because he causes people to be born again, declared righteous in his son by grace through faith alone. In our text, put your eyes down on chapter two and verse two. That same word shows up again. He, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. This is essential. Right For our forgiveness and our cleansing, that's got to be there. Because God is the kind of God who doesn't just ignore sin. He doesn't sweep it under the rug. He doesn't turn the other way. He doesn't have amnesia. He doesn't forget. Sin must be dealt with in God's economy. And so we talk about, here at CBC, with great joy, from the Bible, these objective declarative realities of what has happened in history, like what Jesus came and did. It's an event. It's a thing that happened and we herald that. So he came and he lived a perfect life, fulfilling the law in the place of all of his people, because none of us have fulfilled the law. That's required, right? In God's economy, fulfillment of the law is required. Christ did that as our representative. But then we have sinned. We have broken the law. And the penalty for the law, breaking the law is death and condemnation forever. 
Christ really died as a man under the law for us. And then he also bore the eternal weight of the wrath of God in full for all of his people for all time. He accomplished those things. They're done. And so we herald those realities that he accomplished this for us. And he didn't just accomplish it in some hypothetical way, right? Like, oh, well, he died and hypothetically he bore the wrath of God for people. Or hypothetically he lived a perfect life and fulfilled the law for people. No, we understand, biblically speaking, that there was a real transaction that took place. To use the language of Acts 20, that Jesus obtained us. He purchased us with his own blood. Considering still those great words from Romans 3, God had passed over former sins. He did that knowing Jesus would come to pay for them. He did that knowing that the propitiation was coming. There were real people. So think about people in the old covenant era, right before Christ came. There were real people, particular people, in the old covenant era who were saved. They'll be in the new heavens and the new earth with God forever with us. These real, particular people committed real and particular sins. And precisely those sins are the ones that God had overlooked. The sins of people that that will be born by them forever in hell have not really been overlooked. They're going to be paid for by the person. God overlooks the sins of his people because he knows that Jesus in the Old Covenant context, was coming to pay for those sins, to atone for those sins, to satisfy for precisely those sins. And then Romans 3.26, at the present time, right? It was to show God's righteousness at the present time so that God is both just and the one who justifies the believer. This is because the particular sins of particular people, so I'm looking at people, I know my own sins, Those particular sins committed by particular people were paid for, atoned for, and satisfied for by Christ. That's how you sit here today, not condemned. Because every sin that you have committed, are committing, currently maybe, and will commit, have been paid for in full. All of them. There is no sin that you have committed or will commit that has not been atoned for and the wrath of God has not been satisfied for. That's remarkable news. Like that Jesus really went to the cross. Sometimes this is sentimentalized, but it is true. Christ went to the cross with names to die for his people, right? To purchase us. So not in some sappy way, but in some real way. It's like Jesus went to the cross for Stephen, right? And he's declared righteous because Christ bought him. Same goes for every believer in this room. The reason that we can have confidence in Christ before God is because the payment has been made in full and it's done. There is no hypothetical anything. There is no potential anything that's going to wreck that transaction. It's done. It is finished as Christ has said. There is nothing left to be done with respect to your sin or my sin because Jesus has seen to that. And that is wonderful news. 
More specifically on verse 2 of chapter 2. We read there that John writes, he is the propitiation for our sins. We've considered that quite a bit together. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Just very briefly on this, and you can talk to me at the door after if you would like to. When John says that Jesus is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world, I'm going to just lay my cards out on the table and tell you how I understand this verse, give you a couple of reasons why, and then we'll move forward. I don't believe that John means, in the context, that Jesus has suffered for and satisfied the wrath of God for the sins of all people from all time without exception. I don't understand that to be true. So if you would posit that, right, if you would say that Christ has died, he has atoned for, borne the wrath of God for in a real transactionary way for every human being without exception, then you would have to consistently then argue that all people will be in heaven, right? If Jesus has purchased every human being, real, then you would have to say, okay, then salvation is universal. And all the talk of repenting and trusting Christ is really a waste of our time. We really should eat, drink, and be merry because we're going to go to heaven anyway. I think it's quite plain in this letter, but it's even more plain perhaps as we look at the broad witness of Scripture, that what John is saying is that Jesus, quite simply as he's called other places, is the only Savior of the world. He's the Savior of the world, not of any one particular people group, right? He has saved the world in terms of not every man without exception, but every man without distinction, all tribes and languages and peoples he has saved. He has, Jesus has, satisfied the wrath of God. He has borne the penalty for the sins of everyone who has believed, for everyone who is believing or everyone who will believe. He did it real, and it's done. So quite simply, friends, as we're drawing this big, massive part one to a close, the Lord is the Savior. He is faithful and he is just, which ought to provoke, evoke, I should say, in us praise to him. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable, right? are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Very briefly, before we move on to part two, put your eyes on verse 10 of chapter one. John is going to reiterate. If we say we have not sinned, we make him, God, a liar, and his word is not in us. Again, John reiterates the reality of our sin, and if we deny our sinfulness, we make God a liar, and his word isn't in us because God has said quite simply and frankly in his word that we're sinners. You're contradicting the Lord, right? His word is not in you. God has said also in his word that we have all sinned, right? And fallen short of his glory. So it's right to conclude, friends, that real growth in understanding of God's word. So hear this. Because we've got a church full of people that love the Bible, and I'm excited for that. I want us to love the Bible. But real growth and understanding of God's word, I would suggest, results in three things. More than that, but at least these three things. You can jot these down. First, real growth and understanding of God's word results in humility. Humility. This is inextricably linked now from self-awareness, right? Like, I understand myself, I see myself accurately, and I am therefore humbled. I really am a sinner. I really don't deserve anything good from God. Everything I have is a result of grace. How in the world could I be arrogant? 
It should have that effect. So when people study theology and they become like arrogant jerks, I'm sort of, I'm like, I don't know, something, something is like missed here, right? Like this should not happen. The second thing that growth and understanding of God's word results in is, I would say, an increased, a heightened burden for sin. An increased, a heightened burden for sin. I am more aware in that sense of my own sin. This is how sometimes as you get deeper into the faith and you understand God's word better, you are more mindful of how sinful you really are. It's like, man, I, I felt better about myself when I first became a Christian than I do today. That's kind of normal. But I trust that you are casting, as you feel worse about yourself and you are hopeless in yourself, which you should be, you are all the more eager and joyful to cast yourself on the mercy of Christ. That's growth. Thirdly, a growth and understanding of God's word results in what I already kind of said. I sort of stole my own thunder. A quickness to flee to the mercy of God in Christ when we do sin. That's the challenge, right? When I sin, I feel like, ah, I can't approach God right now. I'm dirty. Like, I've, I've messed it up. God is displeased and all those things. And God is not pleased with sin. And at the same time, he is your father, not your judge, right? Anymore in Christ Jesus. And we run to God in Christ. Father, forgive me. I'm sorry. Give me grace that I might not sin. That's what growth looks like. Part two, let's move on to the second portion of our sermon, friends. This one, we're only considering one verse that might be an encouragement to some. I don't know. We're going to look at chapter two and verse one. I'm going to read that for us again, just because it's a wonderful verse. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So part two, the heading goes this way. When we sin, we have an advocate. When we sin, we have an advocate. Praise God that that's true. You see the term of endearment that John begins verse one with, my little children. Again, this is tender, right? This is pastoral. This is not like a tongue lashing that's going on. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, he says. John's desire for his readers, whom he cares for, is that they might not sin. What other kind of desire would he have? Now, sin's real. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. But my goodness, I write these things to you so that you might not sin. I can say this as one of the pastors of this church. I know Ron would agree. My desire, our desire for us is no different. Right? We, yeah, we talk a lot about the gospel and the forgiveness of sins and compassion and all of those things. And the desire is that we may not sin. I trust that we're in agreement about that. Like the gospel never results in people saying, great, I can just go sin now and it doesn't matter. No, the gospel results in people moved and overcome by what the Lord has done for us. And then we are motivated by that gratitude and joy and love for God to then strive after greater obedience, though we fall. We know that sin is not good for us, frankly, right? It never, never goes anywhere good. It doesn't. It might look good on the front end. Sin looks enticing all the time, right? Satan is disguised as an angel of light. It's tempting to us. All we can think about on the front end of sin is how satisfying it's going to be in some measure. 
we're mindless sometimes to the conviction and just the weight that comes upon us after it's committed. And we know that sin doesn't honor God. And so we want our good and we want God's honor. And so we battle sin. That's what we do. John goes on after saying, I desire that you might not sin. Amen, brother. May we at CBC not sin. And then he says, but if anyone does sin. Now here's another Greek note, okay? The conjunction there, I, think, I actually think this is a bad translation. The word that's there in the original is a conjunction that is not contrasted at all. At all. So it is really hardly, if ever, rendered as a but. It is most often rendered as and. Not that this changes the meaning of the text, but I do think it's not insignificant, right? I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. I would suggest it could say, and if anyone does sin, not contrasting the two. Or, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And then something like, that being said, if anyone does sin, right? Something to that effect, I think would be better quite honestly. But again, I don't think it changes the meaning at all as we look to the verse. So John here is acknowledging the reality that we in the church will sin. That's clear from the context of the letter. That's no shock to anyone. We've thought about it even today. So when we sin, what then? When we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Those are great words of comfort. Again, John's pastoral tone. I would suggest that I think you agree. We could not have a better advocate than Jesus. Why? Why is Jesus such a wonderful advocate? Why is he the best person on the planet to be our representative and to plead our case? We could preach sermons from now until we die or Christ comes on that question. A few thoughts for you today. I'm going to be quoting a lot of Bible. I'm not going to reference a lot of it. Most everything I'm saying right now is coming from the book of Hebrews. So you do with that what you will. First reason Christ is a wonderful advocate for us is that he identifies with us. He identifies with us. He is not ashamed to call them brothers. He calls you brother, sister. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation. There's that word again to satisfy for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Thank you, Jesus. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, what's the conclusion? He identifies with us. He's done these things in our place. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Thank you. Jesus, thank you. What a wonderful song we sang to start the service. Another reason why Christ is the perfect advocate for us is that because he always makes intercession for his own. He always lives to make intercession for his own. Think about these words. The former priests, the old ones, right? The Levitical priests from the old covenant, 
They were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. They died, and so there had to be a lot of them in succession. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. You will end up in heaven. You'll be a Christian tomorrow or 10 years from now because of that reality. Your confidence, my confidence, is completely in the work of Christ in our place. I can know that I am good with God and that I will be with God forever because Jesus never fails and I'm in him. That's how this goes. No confidence whatsoever in myself, in yourself. Jesus, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Sacrificial system was pointing to Christ. It is no more. He did it. He fulfilled it. For the law appoints men and their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, of the covenant, right, of the promise, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Another reason why Jesus is the best, most perfect advocate for us is because he has secured for us an eternal redemption. But when Christ appeared as high priest, he entered once for all into the holy places. Remember how the people of God were kept from the holy place and the most holy place from like being in the presence of the Lord. They couldn't go there because of their iniquity and their sin. Only the high priest could go into the most holy place once a year on the day of atonement to make atonement for the people. But Christ entered there once for all, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, of a cow, right, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Christ is greater. That, that's the point of the book of Hebrews, and we're going to get there eventually. That'll be the title of the sermon series. Christ is greater than everything. Another reason why he is the perfect advocate for us. He did all these awesome things, and then he sat down. He sat down. Here we go. And every priest stands daily at his service. Offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Once and for all, he is perfecting for all time those who are being sanctified. Rest in Jesus Christ this morning. Trust him. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. 
You notice how like the best moments in almost any sermon is when you just herald the truth of God, right? It doesn't take a lot of cleverness from me. These words are powerful. Another reason that Christ is the perfect advocate, he gives rest to the weary. You weary today? I am. You weary from just life and how it bombards you? Are you weary of sin? I trust many are. The words of Christ himself, come to me, all who labor. Come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The prophet Isaiah writes of him, and it's cited in the Gospels, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering candle he will not put out. He is gentle and merciful and kind. You say, man, my faith is not strong. My faith is just flickering. Christ won't put that out. Christ will fan that into flame. He will keep you. This is the call of the gospel. There are many more things that we could say about Christ as our advocate. But I want to move on for just a moment to think about the fact that Jesus is called the righteous here in our text. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Him being the righteous matters in at least two big ways for you today. One, he is righteous. And so he, in and of himself, has ground to stand on in order to be your intercessor. Right? Reason with me. His prayers for you, his intercession for you, his pleading for you is always effective. Why? Because of who he is. Because he's Jesus Christ, the righteous. The Father always hears his prayers and answers them. But second, him being Jesus Christ, the righteous matters for you and for me today. Because his righteousness covers those for whom he advocates. His righteousness covers those for whom he advocates. We've been united to him by faith. His righteousness is counted as our righteousness, like we confessed earlier in the service. We are considered by the Father to be in Christ. That's how we're referred to most often in the New Testament, in Christ. We stand not in our own merit, but we stand in the merit of Jesus Christ, the righteous. That's good news. It is in Christ and in Christ alone that we can find comfort. It's in Christ and in Christ alone that we can find joy. And it's because of Christ and because of Christ alone that assurance, the fact that you are good with God and he is good with you, is the essence of the Christian life and not the pursuit of it. Thanks be to God that that's true through his son. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you now and We come in the name of your son, our advocate, the righteous one in whom we stand, and we give you thanks for him. We give you thanks for your wonderful plan of redemption that you have accomplished through him. We pray for all of us that you would minister to us by your spirit and help us all the more to be aware of our sin, to be humbled by that, and to be quick and eager to run to Christ when we sin. We pray that you would keep working in us so that we might not sin. Give us that grace so that we would honor you. 
We pray for all of these things and we pray for you to minister to us now as we turn to song and to the Lord's table. And we pray for that in Jesus' name, amen.